Blog Talk no. Radio. Good evening and welcome to another episode of A Sound Heart. First of all, I would like to give thanks to God for his unspeakable gift in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is our rock. And if you are paying close attention to what is going on politically and economically and socially and morally and spiritually these days, uh, you know the importance of Christ, our rock, in a weary land. So we want to give thanks to God for having the foresight uh, to know what, what you and I will, would face in this period of time, in this period of history. And so we can go back into the Word of God in order to see what Yahweh's activity, activities included in history so that we can understand his redemptive purpose. And so within the Bible, we, the Bible teaches us about the reality of sin, beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Sin is real. And even those who argue against or who yell against or who protest against sin, their protest, their denial, and their well-reasoned arguments do not negate the reality of sin. Sin within this cosmos is essential ontology. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that sin, which is, for our purposes, is defined as lack of conformity to the character of God, whether it be an act, disposition, or state. What I mean by essential ontology is that sin intrinsic to the cosmos. Sin is not a concept. Sin is not an intellectual idea. Sin is in the very fabric of this cosmos. And so we read in John chapter 1 that the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake to conquer it. So he is, Jesus is the intrinsic light. He is before darkness. Darkness uh, bows to the person of Jesus. 
This is why in Genesis 1 we see a, uh, we're given a picture of God, God's redemptive purpose. God said, like be, like was. We read in Genesis 1 that, uh, at, uh, that the cosmos itself was essentially koshek. That is a darkness that couldn't be felt. The, in the Hebrew, we read that spirit of God, the spirit of God vibrated over the face of the roaring deep. So there was, there was not an icy passivity, even though there, were, there was ice, but there was a dy- dynamic reality to uh, what was going on. And so the Spirit of God vibrated radiant energy over the roaring deep. So here we have Yahweh's redemptive activity. And in uh, that act and in saying, like be, like was. And what we have in Genesis 1 is God bringing into existence physical cosmos uh, through acts that are complementary, acts that are supportive of one another. And so we have a very powerful picture of the power of God. God is before time. He is before mass energy. He is prior to creation. He is the creator. And so we see this in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2. He created the Adam and his wife, uh, Ish and Isha. And God told uh, the Ish in Genesis 2 to guard, to protect his home. Gan Eden, G-A-N hyphen E-D-E-N. Gan Eden was his home. God said to him, guard your home. So God warned him. And isn't it interesting that God had to warn the man to guard his home? Well, there there was another power that was at work. And uh, we read at the end of Genesis 2 that the man and his woman will both naked and they were not ashamed. That word naked, naked is uh, given to us again in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, when it talks about this serpent who was more subtle than any other creature in the field that the Lord God had made. So the word naked and the word subtle has a relationship. And it, and it tells us how the enemy entered into that home, what he would do, what he would exploit, what he would manipulate. You know what happened in Genesis chapter 3. And Yahweh moved in at the cool of the day, and he called not to Eve. He said to the Adam, Where art thou? Where are you? That is, Adam is the federal head of the race. 
God put him in charge. Now, in Genesis 3, we read male and female uh, created he them. And so the woman uh, is a being of power. Uh, in, in ancient Hebrew pictograms, uh, the pictograms that are used of the female is that of the, uh, the bull and uh, the symbol of water. So she is the strong one, and the water is symbolic of her dynamic nature. The man in ancient Hebrew pictograms is symbolized by the head of an ox or bull, as the woman is, and also the the, the floor uh, pattern of, of a tent. So he is the strong one who brings structure to the family. The woman, the wife, is the strong one who brings the dynamic energy to the family or the home. So you see that the enemy moved in and he attacked whom? He attacked the heart of the home. He bypassed the uh, uh, the Adam, the, one, the strong one who brings structure uh, to the family. And so what we're going to have unfold is very terrible events. Uh, God said to the Adam, dying thou shalt die. And we see what happened between the first son of the Adam and his wife, Cain and Abel. And so Cain slew, that is, he ritually slaughtered his brother Abel. The, the, the name Abel means breath. In First John, First uh, John talks about this event, and and John writes that. Uh, uh, that Cain slew him like an animal. So this was, an, uh, the Bible does not cartoonize uh, this event. Uh, th th this was active, this was malice. Uh, malice is congealed anger. And uh, if you notice, the regret of Cain after murdering his brother, Phatricide, he said, um, my judgment, my burden is too much to bear. So you see the self-centeredness, how self-centeredness, how egotism uh, entered into the race and became endemic in the race. Arrogance, self-centeredness. Now, according to the Bible, this arrogance originated with Lucifer, son of the morning. And uh, both Ezekiel and Isaiah talks about how God discovered within Lucifer, son of the morning, uh, this arrogance for God. Uh, the created being wanted to usurp a divine prerogative. And he said, I will ascend above God, and I will do these things above God. Uh, arrogance is a form of, of, of madness. And that became impregnated into the genetic legacy, the genetic memory of humankind through sin. And it is so endemic, it is so intrinsic to the race 
that oftentimes we don't recognize arrogance within ourselves. We don't we don't recognize it because well, it's me. How can I possibly be arrogant? Um, but God sees, and if you study carefully the Old Testament, you will see in in um, in, in Saul and Saul and David, you will see the ascendancy of the ego and what happened to Saul in that. He was driven mad by approbation lust and his desire for ascendancy above that of David. Uh, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has ten thousand. It drove him mad and drove him to murder and uh, to uh, an obsessive uh, discontent uh, entered into his life until he he believed that he he needed to destroy David. Now, after he had received orders from Samuel, to, uh, Yahweh spoke to Samuel, and Samuel gave uh, Saul God's orders. Uh, we read that Saul only did some, accomplished some of Yahweh's will. And and he spoke to Samuel, he said, in language like this, you're a God. So he disenfranchised himself, and he went off and he built a monument to himself. Well, this is the ego. And uh, it is interesting that, that God used uh, King Saul, the living King Saul, to destroy the spiritual King Saul in the life of David. And so the surgery was brutal. And uh, David became uh, very depressed, and he said, one of these days, God, uh, Saul is going to kill me. And so there's a form of depression that is built around arrogance. But it is so, again, it is so endemic and so intrinsic that people oftentimes do not recognize it. And so David stopped looking to the Lord. He stopped depending on the Lord. And he looked, he, he gave, he uh, held a protracted gaze on his circumstances and his situation. And we all may do that at some point. But David came out of it. It wasn't easy. He went through uh, his cave event or a cave event. And, uh, you know, at a point God called him to come out of the cave. But God allowed some things to take place and take, to take shape in David's life so that God would build him into the king that he wanted. He, David, became the king after God's own heart. You see where we start with God and how God may allow certain people or certain things to remain in our lives in order to, to shape us. Yahweh's redemptive activity in history uh, will be through people, things, and circumstances. God knows the end from the beginning. When God called uh, Peter in John chapter 1, uh, Peter received a brand new name. He said, you are Simon. You will become Petros or Peter. You are 
you will be. This is what we see in Yahweh's redemptive activity in history. You are state of being. You will be. Because now Yahweh has entered into the life of the individual. First John writes that uh, we as believers do not, cannot, will not practice sin. We are not uh, habitual. We are not habitual practitioners of sin because the seed, the sperma of God, remains within us. So I want to read to you uh, from Micah chapter 5. This is Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now, in the Hebrew, those last words, ancient times, uh, literally read days of eternity, days of eternity. So to, of whom is Michael speaking? Well, he is speaking of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And notice the language, days of eternity. No, <laughs> it's interesting the language that is used. Uh, the Hebrew word for day is yom. We see this in in, uh, in Genesis 1. Some people want to say, well, the word yom does not refer to a 24-hour day. It refers to a prolonged and indefinite period of time. Well, the text does not allow for that language. How uh, Moses uses Moses, the this this incredible theologian, how he uses the word yom in Genesis is, is, is remarkable because the, in, the, in the word of God, uh, mankind did not begin in caves. Mankind did not begin with grunts. Mankind uh, did not wear, I mean, we read in Genesis 3, that the man and his wife were given animal uh, skins for covers to denote what? That a life had to be sacrificed uh, uh, for sin. So they were covered. Uh, and uh, we use the word atonement. And so some some theologians say the word atonement, A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T, means at one meant, at one meant with God. So... Uh, God's act pointed to the historic uh, coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in 33 AD. When he would die on a Roman gibbet, when he would voluntarily surrender his life for us. Now, this is not a story. This is the reality of Yahweh's redemptive activity, what he did on our behalf. The word redeem means to buy back, means to purchase. Peter wrote that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. Interesting language. But with the precious blood of Christ. What is of more value than silver and gold or gold and silver? 
It is the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you have or has the blood of Christ washed away your sin? Not merely covered, but far, not merely covered, but washed away your sin. If you have or if the blood of Christ has washed away your sin, then you have been given or God has vouchsafed to your account the righteousness of Christ, the rightness of Christ is Yahweh's uncompromising demand. God is not going to sell for my moral view of myself, my philosophical view of myself. God is not going to settle for my political view, my economic view. God is not going to settle. God doesn't have to settle. He is almighty God. He called into existence the universe. He can also dismiss the universe. Now, we are told in scripture and Hebrews that God is going to uh, renovate this earth uh, with fire, that is, uh, and why would he do that? Well, okay. let me read to you from Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 26, verse 21. Isaiah 26, verse 21. Quote, see, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sin. That language which make people go aghast. Okay. People have been so brainwashed. They've been brainwashed beyond their comprehension to realize how badly they've been brainwashed. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth, listen carefully. The earth will disclose the blood shed upon her. She will con- uh, uh, she will conceal her slain no longer. Now, when have you ever heard that verse read on a radio show, on a podcast, or you know, on a, a Sunday message? Ah. If you go to a, a visit a local church, the earth will disclose the blood shed upon it. When Jesus offered himself for the final time, uh, we call it Palm Sunday, he rode into Jerusalem and uh, he was being praised by the people. And their leader said, make, them, make your people stop praising him. And... Jesus said, if they stop, then the rocks will cry out. Nature, and let me say at this point, there is no biblical word either in the Old Testament or New Testament for for, for nature. The Bible doesn't use such language. Because according to the Bible, uh, creation is immediately, immediately accountable to God. What Paul uses uh, in his letter to the Ephesians is the word physis, from which we get the word physics. He uses that word. But not nature as 
uh, an independent reality or a, a some type of deity. The Bible does not use uh, language that addresses the impersonal universe as a being who bestows gifts uh, and blessings. The Bible never uses that. The Bible doesn't use such language because uh, Yahweh is God Almighty, period. And it is the arrogance of man that wants to elevate the creation over the creator. Uh, in Romans 8, Paul talks about creation and how creation is languishing, uh, waiting for the liberty of the children of God. Because creation knows that when Jesus comes back and when we are redeemed or we receive our resurrection bodies, uh, creation, too, is going to be delivered from its bondage. Creation is embonded. Creation bears witness to the end of the cosmos. And creation is going to be a witness against the evil deeds of sinful people. Sinful, sinful people that are on the crust or top of the earth and sinful people who live within the bowels of the earth. Nature, that is, creation is going to do what? Disclose the blood shed upon it. You think these people are going to get away with all the murders that they have done? They will not get away. They may think they're going to get away because why? They have money. They have protection who can protect them. They have armies. They have bodyguards. <laughs> they have all kinds of protection. They have uh, remote uh, palaces. They have remote places where they can hide uh, away from their sins and, and, and keep practicing their sins. But who is a witness against them? The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, beholding the good and the evil. Uh, and so people go on practicing sin. Why? Because they think, well, the Almighty does not see. The Almighty does not know. And Jesus said that uh, the hairs of your head are numbered. God is the infinite, eternal accountant. He knows our hours, the hours that he has given to us, the hours that he has provided for us. Years ago, Buck, Richard Buckminster Fuller said that the average human being lives 800,000 hours. What are you doing with the time that God has provided you? And then uh, read Psalm 90, where he talks about the age of man. And... Uh, it is by God's grace when one's age is extended. Well, what is God saying? What is God doing? Well, that, that's, God, that's God's business. And God even said that to Peter in the book, at the end of the book of John. Uh, you know, if I want something, someone to remain or to continue, uh, Jesus said, then he will. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, I want to take a look. 
this is Exodus chapter 4, Exodus 4. So verse 6, I'm going to start with verse 18. Quote, then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any one of them are still alive. Now, in Hebrew, the word Egypt is Mitzrayim, and it means double distresses. <coughs> Excuse me. And this Mitzrayim bespeaks the horrific violence uh, that God's people were under. It was horrific. And Jethro said, go, I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt. For all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. Doesn't that remind you of the book of Matthew when uh, Jesus, uh, God, the Holy Spirit spoke to Joseph. And Joseph took uh, his newborn son and his wife and he went to Egypt until the people who Herod, uh, who wanted uh, to, to kill Jesus, was dead. See how God acts in history? God did not immediately dispose of Herod. Herod was given a certain period of time to live. But then when the fullness of the time had come, God said what? Out of Egypt I have called my son. And now Moses is called to go back. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who want to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. Staff of God was, was Moses' weapon. Then Yahweh said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. The pharaohs believed they themselves were gods. Now, an interesting fact uh, with regard to the pyramids. The pyramids are global. They're not just in Egypt. They're in Europe. They're in North America. They're in South America. Uh, the pyramids are all over the world. And not in one uh, pyramid in Egypt has there been a sarcophagus found of a pharaoh. Not one. Pyramids were, in fact, not the great sites of pharaohs. So, verse 22, then say to pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, uh, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Now, the language is very interesting. First of all, we have the messenger formula, that is, thus saith the Lord. And then 
you have this language where God says, I will harden his heart. That is the heart of Pharaoh. So uh, hardening of the heart is a divinely directed process. And so it is here given as a process, Pharaoh, in which Pharaoh is not a unique case. I'm speaking of Yahweh's redemptive activity in history. Pharaoh is one case among many. Now, so Pharaoh resisted, that is, in other words, he braced himself against Yahweh. And Yahweh knew that Pharaoh would rebel. And so, uh, please read Exodus 3.19. So, when we read that Pharaoh hardened his heart, the, uh, the language really means this, that God brought out for all to see what was in Pharaoh's heart. It doesn't mean that God moved against Pharaoh without him knowing it or against uh, It means that God brought out what was in his heart for all to see. So, again, the word, so Pharaoh braced himself against Yahweh. And so, and the word brace, it means to brace up or strengthen. And uh, the word points to the hardiness which with a Pharaoh set himself to act in defiance against God. And therefore closed all avenues of his heart to the signs and wonders wrought by Moses. Do you see that or have you seen that in people today? How they brace themselves against the, uh, the Lord? And they don't realize that when they have hardened their wills against the, the, the revelation of God, it is judgment. And they're going to be broken. Jesus said, uh, you know, upon whom this, this rock falls, it will shatter. And so people use their finite wills to brace themselves, harden themselves to resist God's will for them. And uh, they will incur the judgment that they have set themselves. Sinful man, sinful people do not realize that they do not disturb God's own peace. Uh, God's peace is eternal. God is always at peace with himself. The Bible states, the psalmist states that Yahweh sits enthroned above the flood. God, God is not har- harassed by, by human sin. God will make an end of human sin. And you and I look forward to a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. But Pharaoh here is a case in point. God says, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. 
At a lodging place, verse 24, on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zephyrah took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Well, really, she, she, she threw it at him. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Uh, Moses acted in defiance of God, and God was going to make an end of him. The gifts and calling of God are not unto repentance. Lord, send someone else, not me. Lord, I'm too young. Don't send me. Lord, someone is so much more capable, so much more eloquent, can speak better than I. God does not relent. God does not give up. The Lord said to Aaron, this is the brother of Moses, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, I love the language, they bowed down and worshipped. Beautiful language. Afterward, Moses, this is chapter 5, verse 1, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, Again, this is the messenger formula. People go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? That I should should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plague or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Pharaoh said, look, people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. So this was Pharaoh's resolve. Notice the harshness, the hardness of his language. Uh, He was not confronted with an army. He was only confronted by Aaron, uh, Moses and Aaron. But he believed that he could speak this way, this lofty tone, this arrogant tone, to the people of God. And God knew he would. This is why God had already, already prepared the heart of Moses for what Pharaoh would say. Moses was commanded to say what? Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. And God would handle uh, events from there on out. The same day, verse 6, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks let them go and gather their own straw. Now, don't you know that God knew this would happen and that this would be the result of his word? So Pharaoh, uh, in 
becoming, uh, being more abusive to the people of God is compounding his sins. He braced himself against God. You're going to tell me that? Then I'm going to go harder. You see what, what sin does? People operate in darkness, and then they go deeper into uh, operational sin. It is a process. It is a process. And uh, they partner with their own ruin. But they don't see it. They don't feel it. Because why? It's not immediately there. Because judgment does not fall immediately. Then the hearts of the sons of men are, are what? Are committed to the practice of sin. If sin had immediate results, instead of immediate results, then people would probably think twice about their sin. But sin is a process. And I love the language in the book of Leviticus because Leviticus, again, I keep, <laughs> I keep bringing up this word. Uh, and there's a word in Leviticus that means uh, to dissolve. It is also used in the gospel about people dissolving and literally dissolve they, their bodies dissolve, their minds dissolve, their brains dissolve, their nervous system dissolve. They dissolve as people. They waste away in, their, in the ruin that they have created for themselves. And this is why in the Bible, leprosy uh, begins according to the uh, the public health language in the book of Leviticus, leprosy begins, uh, you know, as an infection that's deeper than the skin. It's invisible. No one knows it's there. Eventually, uh, you know, people will know it's there. That's why the priests were also the public health officials. They were able to see and to read and to let people know whether or not a condition is leprosy or not. Sin, I mean, leprosy is a type of sin in the word of God. Now, uh, you know what happens to Pharaoh. You know what he did. And what he, he co-partnered in his, in his own ruin. And you see in the case of Judas, what happened to him. You see... In the case of Cain, the mark of Cain, he was given a mark so that no one would, would kill him. Uh, you see uh, what happened also to the, to the giant Goliath who went out and cursed the people of God. Uh, he was destroyed by a stone. And so, and then his head was cut off. David stood up on him and cut off his head. Uh, you don't want to go against Yahweh. God, Yahweh moves in history. Uh, some people talk about Yahweh's mysterious ways. There are, he does move in mysterious ways, but just think of language that we have in the Word of God, the events uh, that we can read and study about in the Word of God. Yes, God moves in mysterious ways, but man, what we know in his word, what we know from him, the things that he has done, the things that he has achieved, the evidence is overwhelming as to who he is and what he has done for our redemption. 
You would be blessed today to decide, follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The world around you is dissolving, and it wants to dissolve you. This is a devil's world. You want to be part of that new world that is with Jesus Christ our Lord. Good evening. My name is Dr. Josiah Rich. God bless you.